The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Hello, Sequel Questers. This is a Sequel Quest Rewind. Diving back into the archive to July of 2017, recorded pre-2017 San Diego Comic-Con, this is a Sequel Quest comic book movie wish list special. Welcome to Sequel Quest, the podcast where Adam, Jeff, and Jeremy invite you on a cinematic journey to create prequels, sequels, and reboots to your favorite movie franchises. Joined by special guests along the way. Sequel Quest is go for launch, so let the adventure begin now. From Hall H to the Hall of Justice, every superpowered being looks forward to their annual moment in the national spotlight. It's Comic-Con season, everybody! And while we don't have a booth on the main floor this weekend, we do have a podcast and plenty of fanboy fanaticism for the world of comics. So today, we're talking all about the untapped comic book properties that deserve to be brought to life by Hollywood, but have yet to be called up to the big leagues. Now, joining us for our Comic-Con special, we have an actual hero for hire. No, not Luke Cage. He was too busy running around with the Defenders. But our guest today is just as exciting. A former co-worker Jeff and I both became acquainted with while working in costume as part of the Disneyland character department for several years. A man of a thousand faces and as many masks. Please welcome Kurt. Hey guys, what's up? How you doing? Things are always busy and always hopping. Ready for yeah, Comic-Con. Yes. I will be there on Friday. Oh, excellent. Working or will you be there just enjoying the fun? Just enjoying the fun and trying to get into the Hasbro booth. What are you waiting for there? Marvel Legends, the Thor set, and the 12-inch Daredevil as well. I've given up on the Star Wars Black stuff because they always sell out. <laughs> so Hasbro booth, just hang on to one of each for Kurt. That would be awesome. And the regular Sequel Quest crew, Jeremy? Yes. Jeff? I'm here. So as a superhero out there, we know you can't reveal your secret identity necessarily at all cases, but which theme parks have you actually worked in, donned costumes in over how many years? What can you tell us about your current line of work? All right. Well, I've been at Disneyland for a long time. I'll just say that. Um, (laughs) I don't perform there anymore. I worked at Tokyo Disneyland for two years, and every once in a while I would be flown. I don't know if you guys know this. I would be flown to Walt Disney World to do some events there because some of the show directors liked my look. So I would perform certain things there, which the Floridians didn't really like. Yeah. Uh, I've worked at Universal Studios Hollywood, and I think that's it for my theme parks. But I also worked for Marvel Productions, traveling around with them as well as a separate entity from the Disney Marvel. Now, at Universal, they obviously have a lot of shows there. And one in particular that is in the zeitgeist right now, because I know Terminator 2 Judgment Day is being re-released back into theaters in 3D, but that's been going on at Universal for a long time, and I understand that you have uh, played the T-800. Yes, that is true. I played him for three and a half years. The show has closed at Universal Hollywood. It closed a couple years ago and was replaced by a Despicable Me ride, which Uh, some of us refused to go to (laughs) (laughs) because we love our old venue. Yeah, so I did that. That was was totally 
totally cool and totally awesome. In a show realm at Universal Hollywood, I was also Hellboy. Wow, that's for a crazy. Halloween show. Yeah, that was pretty cool. It was a Bill and Ted show. and <laughs> The controversial Bill and Ted show. We weren't that controversial at the time. It was the year that Hellboy 2 came out. Oh, and the nice. show was based around him. And so I played that role as well. And so at the end of the show, there's, if any of you know what the Bill and Ted show happens, you know, it's a bunch of pop culture references with different celebrities and whatnot. But at the end of the show, there's like a 15 minute dance party thing that we all do. So if you were lucky enough to have Hellboy thrusting his pelvis in your face, well, that was probably me. <laughs> Rocky Horror Picture Show featuring Hellboy. Okay. Wow. We get it. We get it. Actually, you're not that far off. <laughs> uh, now, let me ask this because obviously it's your profession, it's your work, but did you dress up for fun as a kid? Were you superheroes and movie characters for Halloween growing up? Yes. I think my first Halloween costume that was something that I made that was from a film was a Tuscan Raider. And I will never forget that because I used toilet paper for the eyes, toilet paper rolls <laughs> for the eyes. And that was my first foray into wearing a character costume because I learned quickly that I couldn't see because I didn't have any peripheral vision. I will never forget that, though. I was wearing my mom's house coat because it was brown. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Got to improvise. Pictures yeah. <laughs> pictures exist somewhere. And I was probably, I don't know, 10, something like that. I was probably 25. Um, <laughs> no, but yeah, that was my first one. I did Indiana Jones. I actually, <laughs> this might be a little controversial because I love the Avengers. The Avengers are my favorite ever. And I was Black Panther once for, <laughs> oh, wow. for, oh, wow. for a costume party. I was a dancer as a kid. And so people used to say that I moved like a cat. So anything cat-related kind of became my thing. Well, I wasn't going to be Tiger. That wasn't going to happen. So that was the closest thing I could get to being an Avenger and being a cat. Well, nice. Got to post that picture one of these days if there is one of those. <laughs> there the is one, actually, somewhere. Well, uh, Jeremy, I'm curious. Have you ever dressed up as a character superhero for Halloween? Uh, when I was young, I had the cheapest Batman costume you could find. <laughs> Pretty much just a black sheet with bunched up ears <laughs> and holes for the eyes. Yeah, that happened. Cool. Jeff, how about you? Mine, I'm pretty sure, was the Batman outfit that my mom made herself. All right. Well, I have somewhat of a, a history. I've worn many costumes over many years, but I know when I was seven, my mom made me a full-on spandex Superman costume. So I totally had that. And at one point, when it, like a few years later, I decided to cut it off and make it a midriff shirt. <laughs> I don't know what I was doing. Oh, it was the God. late 80s, uh, early 90s. I'm not sure where my mind was but um, <laughs> and then at 14 i got a trench coat and a scarf and was the shadow i was a big fan of the alec baldwin shadow then more recently one of the ones i've loved just to break out every once in a while is peter parker mid-transformation into Spider-Man. So it's kind of like, I got this costume underneath, but then I have a white shirt over it, kind of opening. Then I have the web shooters that I made on my wrist, poke it out of the shirt. But cosplay is big business these days. It's expensive, but the place you always see them, right, is Comic-Con. I mean, this is the season where people just go nuts. Like, I personally go on websites just to look at the cosplay photos. They're amazing. But I'm curious, so, Kurt, you said you're going to Comic-Con this year. Is this an annual tradition for you? Have you been going for many years? Uh, yeah, I've been going for, I've, I was trying to calculate this with a buddy of mine, at least 15 years now. It started as a whim. My buddy and I worked at Disney. We were just like, hey, let's go to Comic-Con. So we drove up one day and we did, and it was awesome. And then we've got, we've tried to make the tradition of going every year together, since, but it doesn't quite always work out. But uh, Comic-Con is just nutty and crazy and 
wacky. And the first time I started going, it was, there weren't as many people there as there are now. Now it's almost more of a Hollywood con than it is a comic con per se. Um, A couple of years ago, because there's a, uh, for those of you that don't know, there's a whole area called artist alley where legit artists are there drawing and you can meet them that kind of shrunk a lot over the years. And then I think they got some complaints because a couple of years ago it came back like probably bigger than ever, which was great. I do panels and things like that, but mostly just walk around with some buddies and, and we'll, besides trying to get in the Hasbro line, just walking <laughs> around and looking at the crazy costumes. And one of the questions I, I've already been asked, I get to ask this every year is, you know, do you dress up? And the answer to that ladies and gentlemen, is no. And <laughs> for twofold, number one, if I was going to wear a costume, it would have to be impeccable. It would have to be perfect. Yeah. And I don't have the time or the resources to do that. Number two, I'd get paid to do this. So I would have, because I would, I would be doing sets. I would be entertaining people for free, which is not my gig anymore. <laughs> I did see at D23, I've been seeing pictures of one of my former co-workers at Disney, she did, oh, it's fantastic. If you guys can find it, you have to find it. She did Yondu Mary Poppins. Oh, oh I did see it. She's in the red jacket. <laughs> and she got to meet Michael Rooker, and she took pictures with Michael Rooker, and then it went on at Marvel sites, and she's thrilled to death. And she looked fantastic. And the fact that she used to be a, well, I shouldn't really say, but she may have been an English nanny in a former life. Karen. Uh, <laughs> um, so she week. has that kind of in anyways, but... Uh, yeah, that was totally cool to see. I mean, she totally decks herself out in those costumes. It was fantastic. That's amazing, yeah. And Jeff so and Jeremy, you, have you been to Comic-Con yourselves? I have not. For me, I mean, we live in San Diego, so it takes over a third of the city for <laughs> a weekend. So last year we did, and it's crazy how much stuff there is just set up. I mean, Amazon had a whole thing set out there. FX had a whole thing set out. There was an entire South Park town that they had built out there. Yeah, it's pretty crazy just to walk around. I went once in my lifetime in 1996. So I was there and I would see people like Lou Ferrigno from the Hulk TV series and Tia Carrere from Wade's World and David Hasselhoff, the cast of Starship Troopers. And even though it's like mainly a comic book event at that time and I was a fan, I blew all my spending money on a bootleg Kiss concert video and all four original <laughs> Kiss action figures. That's totally Adam Pope right there. Totally yep. Adam. Wow, that's cool. Now, but Kurt, so you said that, you know, obviously the Avengers had been your favorite all this time, but are you... Have you been an actual comic book reader and fan all these years? I've been reading them since I was probably six or seven years old. I got all my brother's hand-me-downs, and my brothers are 10 and 9 years older than I am, so they had quite a stash of them in order, mostly teen books, so a lot of Justice League, Teen Titans, Fantastic Four, Avengers from the 60s until probably when they all stopped was maybe like the early 80s. So that's when I kind of took them over and then I continued on. And my thing is team books as well. I think it's mostly monetary because when you get a certain amount of allowance, I figured I could get (laughs) Superman books and Batman books, but if I get the Justice League, I get them both. So... (laughs) More value. Yeah, that makes sense. Exactly, exactly. Now, I'm curious. So, Jeremy, I know you read a lot of comics, especially in preparation for the movies, but were you a comic book reader before the Marvel Cinematic Universe hit? Actually not. Bane summarizes my history with comics in The Dark Knight Rises. But you merely adopted the comics. (laughs) 
<laughs> I really just kind of jumped into them when I didn't have anything to do. Mostly it was digital. I had free time on my hands. I had extra money. So I was like, oh, let's read this one. And then I got into some storylines and ended up buying the whole storyline. Ooh, this is where they're going with the movies. Let's read up on it. But I did find that sometimes with comic book movies, you can overset your mind to how it's supposed to play out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Iron Man 3 is pretty much <laughs> that. <laughs> that's the epitome, the oh. epitome of me. Like, I know people hate it. <laughs> Ah, uh, I went in, I heard they were doing the extremist storyline, the Mandarin, whatever. Cool. So there was a, a motion comic that was on Netflix for a while about the extremists. And I was like, Ooh, this is dark. This, this would be interesting to see how they go about it. Uh, yeah. I walked out of that theater going, I hated it. I absolutely hated it. Horrible. But I had to go back a second time because I knew I set myself up for disappointment. So I was like, okay, now that I know where things go and how they're laying things out, let me go watch it back as just a popcorn flick. Something that I can just, no expectations, see if I enjoy it. Jeremy, that's the thing is, since you have, you know, again, adopted comics, as you said, for the purposes of getting to appreciate the films more, for those of us who have been comics fans for 20, 30 years, we got used to disappointment very early. <laughs> so so it's like, it's like, it's not going to resemble the comic at all. All right, we'll just take it as it comes then, you know, so we all were right. conditioned for that. So that's an interesting perspective you have, though. Now, Jeff, speaking of 20 years, uh, we've been friends for as long, a little bit more My and uh, I remember your comic book collection and seeing like that was one of the things I was like oh he's a geek like me this is good but Jeff what was your first comic that's what I'm curious about because I know who you were reading but where did you start yeah so I got in right at the comic book boom of the mid 1990s I remember specifically when comic books went from one dollar to a dollar 25 and we were outraged that was the most <laughs> horrible thing they'd ever done to us. But my dad used to have a store up in Garden Grove, California, and it was kind of like a mercantile flea market sort of a thing. And there was always this one person that had this rack of old comic books. And I remember there was like three comic books that I kept eyeballing. And so I think the very first one that I bought was... New Mutants issue in Secret Wars 2, which if, if you know any, like, <laughs> it made absolutely no sense. And the cover, oh. which one, and I still have it uh, in my box, but the cover had an autograph, but it wasn't an actual autograph of the writer. It was somebody <laughs> had put, like, a fake autograph on it. Oh, cover the Beyonder? All of that. <laughs> well, no, this is when they fought the Beyonder, and so the end of the comic was all of them died. It was like, what are we talking about? So that was the very first <laughs> one that I got. Jeff, is that when the Beyonder was in his silver kind of Jeff suit with his mullet? <laughs> exactly. When he came back Jerry and tried to learn what it was to be human. Oh, painful. But then the first one that I like actually went, it was right when the Fantastic Four, again, there's this train of death that goes all through my comic book readings. The Fantastic Four had all apparently died and they had to replace them with the new Fantastic Four, which was Hulk, Wolverine, Ghost Rider, and Spider-Man. And that was the hottest comic book like around. Everybody had to yep. get it because it was Big Four and everything like that. I still so that was my, my very first yeah. comic book that I bought. Oh yeah. 
Now, for me, I grew up loving superheroes like Spider-Man and his amazing friends and old 60s Spider-Man and Super Friends, all that stuff. Like, I watched it. But when I got into comics, it was around 88, and my first comics were bought from a spinner rack at a 7-Eleven. I was on vacation yep. visiting my sister. My brother-in-law was just driving me around town, took me in, got me a Slurpee, and I was like, can I get some comics? And so I got this issue of Excalibur, which was like this alternate <laughs> reality issue, and it had like a million characters on the cover all coming at each other. Kind of like Kurt said, oh, great value here. There's going to be so many superheroes in this book. Then I got an issue of Marvel Tales featuring Spider-Man and Nightcrawler, and I still have both of those issues to this day. You know, they were just so monumental to me, because from there, it really snowballed especially like Jeff said, because just around the corner was the 90s boom. And I was in the comic shop every other weekend, just loading up many long boxes, which have been whittled down over the years. Because I, I realize like now I've been collecting comics for almost 30 years, which is nuts to me. But my first obsession was this Robin miniseries when they had just gotten a new Robin named Tim Drake. And so it was like this big build up, a new costume design. And it was I was fanatical about it. When I was in Cub Scouts for the Pinewood Derby two years in a row, I did a, a Robin car, you know, it was painted with the Robin R on it. And so, I mean, that, that was just stuff that I couldn't get away from, you know, Spider-Man 2099. There was just all sorts of great stuff going on at the time. But obviously I've kept reading it. I'm curious to know, Kurt, let's say like over the last 10 years, what are the titles that you either continue to read or a specific storyline you really enjoyed? Well, I'd still buy a lot of Justice League and Avengers. I had to tear down some of the Avengers titles because it got a little too ridiculous. This is an Avengers team, really? I mean, come on, people. That's just stupid. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I'm a purist and I'm a collector, so I would try to get everything. But there was at one point in time, I want to say like four or five different books, and it just got really kind of confusing. My favorite of the last big storylines from Marvel was probably Civil War the first oh, Civil yeah. War, just because I thought it was really well plotted. The Registration Act going into it, I thought was interesting. And the whole Peter Parker unmasking thing, which was big shock and, you know, and mm -hmm. how they kind of got out of that in a way. I thought the whole lead into it, and once you realize that it was a whole buildup for quite a while, I thought it was done really masterfully. DC-wise, once the New 52 ended and <laughs> they kind of got back into the groove of it, I think the relaunch after the New 52, I, I liked. Like Aquaman, I finally liked. At least the, the beginning was done really, really well, where it was kind of a tongue-in-cheek of why do people hate him, and then he became a total badass. So I think it's helping to lead into the movie version a little bit. Nice. Okay. Now, Jeff, what about you? So I, like you said, New Mutants, and I know you used to carry around the Marvel Essential trade of Thor in your trunk. <laughs> yeah, what, do you, I, I what, love... what, what have you kept reading? Oh, no. Uh, I haven't. The comics kind of took a turn. I mean, kind of like Kurt was saying that they kept doing, it felt like Marvel especially was really guilty of overdoing the crossovers. My swan song was they did, I was a big X-Men reader. I always read the X comics, especially after New Mutants. And they did the Executioner song where Cable slash Strife dressed up as Cable assassinated Professor X. And in order to follow the story, you had to buy X-Factor and you had to buy X-Force and you had to buy an X-Men and you had to buy Uncanny X-Men. And it was just like, I just can't afford this anymore to follow these storylines. After I stopped reading, I read they did the whole Onslaught thing where it was that growing hatred for mutants again well, now i gotta also read captain america to find out how it affected him and how just, yeah it was kind of overload for me the death of superman even though it was kind of like especially in hindsight it was kind of cheesy it was a blatant publicity stunt just to try and sell collector's items or whatever 
But I really appreciated the storyline leading into it and the fact that it was really selling that only Superman can defeat this person. And this is someone that actually could defeat Superman because no one else has ever been able to. And if you guys have followed that Death of Superman trade paperback, I really thought it was cool that it started off as a traditional comic. And then as the series went on, it started with a, what is it, the typical eight panel sheet. And then it turned into just two frames per sheet. And then it was just each page was its own panel. And then the final one were just full spreads for the entire issue. And I thought that was a cool way to do it. Yeah, Dan Jurgens did a great job with the art and the writing and everything on that. I personally followed the reign of the Superman after the fact for the four replacements. I was like, oh, this is awesome. We get four Supermen for the price of one, you know? <laughs> get rid of Clark Kent. I want the new batch. So you didn't survive the 90s then. They burned you out. That's interesting. Now, Jeremy, have you discovered any other titles that are maybe not even Marvel or that are outside of connections to movie universes? Uh, not really. I've just kind of bounced around within Marvel. Marvel mostly. Like, I've done Planet Hulk, I've done World War Hulk, uh, Doctor Strange and the Secret Defenders, Original Sin was excellent. Agreed. I mean, all the Infinity Gauntlet, Infinity War, Thanos Quest, New Avengers, Civil War, just a lot of good stuff. Oh, okay. Well, I like to jump around to a lot of different things, and my pitches are going to be some more semi-obscure properties <laughs> that I hope will uh, come to life someday. But for me, of the last decade or so, from Marvel's, one was called Earth X by Alex Ross, who people know mostly from his painting work. He did Marvel's, he did Kingdom Come and all that. But he, Alex Ross, Jim Kruger, basically imagined an alternate future of the Marvel Universe, and it just went on and on and on. It's it's like a total reconfiguration of life as we know it. But it, how did they evolve? Like Black Panther turned into a Panther man. And they actually predicted him marrying Storm before that actually happened in the comics. They kind of planted that seed, you know, and all these different things. Like it was just a really awesome storyline. And then my favorite book to read at all times, any version of it that comes out is Mike Allred's Madman, which is just such a fun comic. It's quirky and it's very sweet. It's not grim and gritty type of comic at all. It's a throwback to kind of the 60s style. And most of the time, the guy just wants to go on a date with his girlfriend. But I love Madman. <laughs> Madman. And the spinoff, The Atomics, was another great team book that was put together. But honorable mention also goes to John Byrne's uh, hilarious run on the sensational She-Hulk in 1990. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean, I love She-Hulk. She's not one of my pitches, but I hope we get her in the Marvel Cinematic Universe someday because she's such a personality and so much fun. I hope they could work her in someday. What's interesting about She-Hulk is, you know, because once his chops that plays Hulk, he keeps saying that there's not going to be a Hulk movie. There won't ever be a Hulk movie. Mm -hmm. And so my buddies and I always hope that they bring She-Hulk in so that there can be a She-Hulk movie if he's not going to want to do a Hulk movie. Well, I, I don't think it's he doesn't want to do one. It's a rights issue where Universal holds the rights to all distribution of any Hulk-related solo movie. But as long as he is teamed up, like they're doing with Thor Ragnarok, they're essentially mashing two storylines together and it's not considered a solo film. So Disney Marvel gets to distribute that film. Got it. So they could do a She-Hulk movie and then have Mark Ruffalo cameo. 
See, it'd That's be perfect. True. So just before we get into this, that I'm curious to know for you guys, just overall, I mean, this is the era of comic book adaptations that people really look forward to. But obviously there's been years and years of superhero films to varying degrees of success. But I'm just curious, of all time, what has been your favorite superhero or comic book based film? And actually, let me ask Jeff, is there one that you could go to and say, you know what? I can literally say this is the one. I would put that in two categories. If you're going to say a character from a comic book that has been turned into a movie, then I'd have to say the Richard Donner Superman. I mean, I still think that's the best superhero movie ever made, one of the best movies, period, ever made. I mean, even as much as I love the Tim Burton Batmans, it was kind of believed that you can't adapt a comic book honestly. Like, you gotta throw away the comic book, even the the Richard Donner one, they use less of inspiration, but they didn't want to take a storyline and put it on screen because for some reason it was thought just not to translate. So for me, that first Iron Man, I mean, especially when he built that first suit and I was like, oh my gosh, that's the original Iron Man suit. That blew me away that Marvel figured out how to do that, how to bring the comic book to the screen to be authentic and still connect yeah that really impressed me all right now jeremy where do you fall uh best wise the dark knight you have to bring that one up it has its faults but it also just has heath ledger's performance just owns that movie it's very true very true how about you kurt well as jeff mentioned i mean it's superman it's just an amazing movie on its own and it's got everything you want and and christopher reeve is just perfection he's so nice so likable but you know, gets the job done and so sympathetic. I mean, the whole, everything, everything about it from start to end, even though it's an old movie now, just perfect. I do have to give an honorable mention to Batman Returns. I don't think it's the best movie in the world, but I love Michelle Pfeiffer and she's hot. <laughs> but it's also the pathos that she goes through, you know, when she turns crazy and then it, how you become a villain, even if you don't want to be one. The way she went through that transformation was just incredible. And then playing off of Keaton and Walken, the three of them together at the end was just <laughs> Danny DeVito. Okay, whatever. I, that one, I, it was fine. But the three of them together was just like, wow, still just amazing to me. So mm. of recent what? movies, I would have to say is Deadpool. I think it's hysterical. I don't think it's the best movie in the world per se, but I think they captured him really well. A million jokes a minute, man. <laughs> yep. And, you know, going with the rated R, thank God, because it's, if Disney would have had it, they would have done a PG version or PG-13, which oh, would gosh. not have been would not have done the, the character justice. Yeah, for me, I honestly, I mean, there's there's been so many great ones lately, but I always have to go back to Burton's 89 Batman. The film itself, I mean, we talked about Heath Ledger's performance to The Dark Knight, but Jack Nicholson's performance is just as iconic. Oh, yeah. and ju- oh, yeah. It's so entertaining. He's so quotable. I love every, pretty <laughs> much every scene in that movie and all the casting, even down to Eckhart. You know, like just any any character <laughs> in the film, I love them all. You got Billy D. Williams, ah, don't worry about ghosts and goblins. There's just so many great, also the high that was surrounding that film oh, at the yeah. time there was nothing like it it was like yeah. every inch of your life was batman cereal <laughs> to sneakers to t-shirts and everything the batmania so it's the one i could just always put in and get a chuckle out of and then get some awesome moments here and there and yeah batman 89 so those are the ones that we've seen these are the adaptations we've gotten these are characters that in many cases have been rebooted many times have been recast but what we're gathered here today to do 
is to kind of call <laughs> Hollywood's attention to, you know, there's a lot of other great stuff out there. And like Jeff said, adapting things directly or really using the source material and seeing how valuable that is. So what we're going to be doing now here is going around. We've all picked a couple characters, you know, who had their own books or you may be established characters that have had films made, but there's a particular storyline that has not yet been used that is just waiting in the wings. So, Kurt, why don't you get us started and tell us about the first untapped comic book property. Okay, so I've been thinking about this for quite a while, actually, and especially since Guardians did so incredibly well as an unknown property, you know, to the masses. I would do The Eternals, and it's a twofold You know, because the Eternals of Earth and there's the Eternals of Saturn. And the Eternals of Earth, for those of you that are out there that may not know them, they are created by the Celestials. And most of the people at the time thought that they were the Greek gods. So they have superhuman powers and all that kind of stuff. And then the ones on the moon are directly related to Thanos. So you could create with the first batch being on the planet side, which have ties to the Avengers, you could start with them and then go off into space. And then you have two groups of Eternals that really should be more prominent in Marvel comics as they are anyways, because of their history. They're just not. But I think that that's something that they could really take off on because Wonder Woman really is the only one that's tapped into any kind of Greek or Roman type gods. And this could as well by bringing not the Greek or Roman gods into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but bringing their offshoots into it. So it's not really the Greek gods, but it's something close, which is unusual and interesting, and then go off into space with the rest of them. And then they could easily blend into the cinematic universe. I mean, the Guardians would be a great connection to the Eternals of Saturn. And so I think that would be an interesting property that no one's talking about, no one would think to use, but could be very interesting. Yeah, definitely. And it's worth noting that they were created by Jack Kirby. So, I mean, you think right. about all the other characters uh, of his that have yeah. been adapted. Yeah. Whose <laughs> granddaughter true. we used to work with at Disney. What? Tracy Kirby. Wow, that's cool. Oh, yeah. Jeremy, what do you have for us? Who did you have in mind? All right. Well, this one is going to be a little somber in how I would apply this story. It is a one-off and I already brought it up. It is Original Sin and in that story it's Uatu the Watcher or whoever we apply this to in the MCU because I believe Uatu's rights are wrapped up at Fox but whoever the Watcher would be for the MCU it's more or less confirmed that Stan Lee is that Watcher. Right. And he's been wanting a bigger role. Well, we would hold off this storyline until he passes. And this would be how he exits the MCU. Interesting. So this storyline is the Watcher is assassinated. And Nick Fury then begins putting together an investigation into who did it. So it's a whodunit kind of mystery. And I don't want to spoil it. So you guys should really look into it. It's worth the read. You can tweak characters to include all the guys that we have in the MCU and it even takes like Doctor Strange and the Punisher to another realm it seems like a very weird combination but yeah, it that works team up, uh... <laughs> and then you've got Black Panther's got his team looking into something Gamora and Moon Knight arrive at a at a secret base so I mean you're pulling specific people from these various teams that are created throughout the MCU and you're 
putting them together for new on-screen matchups and new chemistry and all sorts of fun. Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And also Moon Knight is one of those characters who's always been in development for TV, like over and over. Oh, we're doing a Moon Knight series. He's been announced for years, and then it just wow. never happens. Yeah. Because he's like Marvel's Batman in a way. He's like Marvel's he Batman is. with schizophrenia. But yeah. <laughs> And some Egyptian god. Some supernatural powers, yeah. Yeah. You mix the mummy, you mix Batman, you got Moon Knight. Jeff, how about you? So mine, and I think I've heard that Fox or somebody was in development for this, but like you mentioned, my favorite comic book series has always been the New Mutants, and I am 115% sure that if Fox does develop it, they'll do it wrong. So I would want to do the New Mutants right, which would probably mean you got to give it to Netflix or Amazon or something like that. And the cool thing is that so often TV shows always struggle with children because it's like you want to have children on your show, but you're never really prepared for them to grow up because as they grow up, they become incredibly uninteresting. Like if you watch Modern Family, Modern Family started with all oh, these cute little kids and then they grow up into like awkward teenagers, but they've really tried to be like, no, this, it's a family story. It's the point that they're growing up and now they're different and they're interesting just in a different sort of way. So, and that's really, for me, that's what the New Mutants was about. It was you follow these 12-year-old kids that enroll in Xavier's Academy and they're not the cool kids. They're not physically attractive. People don't think, oh, they're the coolest kids. No, they're losers. I mean, one of them is this gawky, <laughs> awkward kid, Sam Guthrie, who's from Alabama and he sounds like a hick. Ryan, uh, Rain, I guess you pronounce it. She kind of looks like a wolf, even when she's in human form. The one cool kid is the kid from South America, but that's the point. And it's not about the fact that like, oh, look, look at these awesome things that they can do with these powers and go kill people and like blow stuff up. It's more they're struggling with how do we incorporate this into your life? That's what I loved about the New Mutants is that maybe every other issue would have no action in it at all. Uh, that one pitch that I did back when we did our X-Men thing was about that Kitty Pride issue where it was dealing with a kid that was accused of being a mutant, so he committed suicide. That was the whole issue. No action. No, it was just teenage drama. It's like, I think it'd be really cool. You'd still have action because their mutant powers would be used, but that's not what makes them interesting. It's not they're interesting because they have powers. They're interesting because they're teenagers and they have powers. And I think I'd love to see that story and maybe let it go for, you know, four or five years until they're 17, 18 year olds. And then it's a whole different story. And that's what makes it so interesting to me. Well, Fox uh, has failed us before. They will probably fail again. So, you know, <laughs> they will. <laughs> Hopefully they are listening and uh, give some good ideas there. This is the way you really do it. I mean, even this is kind of different company, but Watchmen was a literal adaptation. And some people liked it. Some people didn't the film. But now they're going back and making an HBO series. Right. So they're actually going to turn it into the serialized version of the story that maybe it should have been all along so uh -huh. you never know they might rethink it you know after the fact and like you said make a deal with amazon or whoever all right well my story is this great writer artist his name is terry moore he got big with this book called strangers in paradise and that's just been going on forever but he's famous for writing female characters that are real women and he draws them you know like they're, you know they're attractive but it's a girl next door type of way not Lady Death, you know, or Rogue or whoever, you know, the bombshell look. And so he did this story a few years ago called Echo. 
And basically the story of this average soon-to-be-divorced woman named Julie who gets partially bonded with this experimental metallic skin after the previous wearer, who's a scientist named Annie, is blown to bits during a test flight of this beta suit, they call it. And Julie just happens to be down below when the fallout comes. And so all these little metallic balls end up all over her. Then they form a chest plate. And it turns out that it protects her in these moments of danger to, like, blast enemies who come after her who end up being all these hired hit men and bounty hunters and government agents and then there's this crazy hopeless guy called Kane who also got a piece of the metal and he's like blasting her trying to kill her so he can get all her metal she's on the run and what happens is she gets teamed up with this female agent named Ivy Raven how's that her name (laughs) and as well as Annie's boyfriend Dylan who's a park ranger and he's trying to figure out what happened to my girlfriend. He doesn't know she got blown up. So they form this trio that are on the run because Ivy is supposed to take Julie in, but she realizes, okay, this is not for national security. The government's actually, you know, the army specifically is creating a super collider and this material is supposed to go in the super collider to create a black hole to like suck up enemy armies and things. And it's just like, they know it's going to be the end of the world. So now with this race to get to the super collider and stop it. And along the way, the, things that make it really interesting is not this plot. What makes it interesting is the relationships and just the way these characters are written. They're bickering all the time, but then they become friends and then they trust each other. They don't trust each other. Plus, turns out Annie's consciousness is still inside the metal. So now Julie has another woman inside her body and the boyfriend's right there and Annie can take over Julie's body and she's like, knock it off! You know, stuff like that. And so <laughs> you know, it, it's just a really engaging story. The characterization Every character is well-developed. You know, every character has a, a backstory, has real relationships outside of just the adventure they're on and they pull people in and people die and all these things. So when I think about this, like for Julie, like Alison Brie or Mary Elizabeth Winstead, they're kind of on different sides of things, but could play the average girl, but have a little attitude. And then you would have somebody like either Linda Cardinelli, who's great, or Jennifer Connelly as, you know, Agent Ivy. Fun fact, by the way, my daughter is actually named after that character but my wife doesn't know that <laughs> i've never told <laughs> her now. today i was reading the comic at the time and i was like how about ivy because she's just a, a great character she's actually like this government agent but she's also like a really loving protective mom and all this stuff uh, but anyway i was also thinking of like throwing Kristen bell in there as annie as kind of like the voice inside her head trying to take over and then get john krasinski as dylan the boyfriend because you gotta love john krasinski he's just fun and, and the last <laughs> thing i'll just mention is it Turns out I'm not too off base because in 2009, the film rights were purchased by a producer named Lloyd Levin. And it, this guy has been the executive producer everything from like Field of Dreams to Die Hard 2, The Rocketeer, Hellboy, Kurt, Watchmen. I mean, he's <laughs> been involved in a lot of comic book films. And it was supposed to be made in 2011, but I guess it didn't happen. I mean, maybe one of these days we'll get it. Echo, check it out. But for you now, Kurt, you had the Eternals, you're thinking cosmic, massive story. What was the secondary one you had? in mind. Okay. So the secondary one I had was a series that my brother had that I just loved because this is going to sound totally corny. My favorite comic book female of all time is Black Widow. So I'm glad she's in the MCU because I like the character, but I always kind of gravitated to her stuff whenever she was in something. And, you know, in the 80s and 90s, she was never around. So that was kind of like, well, screw that. Who am I going to go to now for my woman figure that I like? But okay, so if you could have a mashup between Marvel, Disney, and Fox, (laughs) you're going to love this, I would do the champion. 
totally. And it was that group that should never have been together ever because none of them really <laughs> had any kind of connection whatsoever. And the book only lasted like 17 or 18 issues or something like that. And it's still the joke of Marvel. But it's just because you know, it's Black Widow, Hercules, Iceman, Angel, and Ghost Rider, right? Then you throw in Dark Star, who's the Russian woman, and then you have Black Elias in there eventually. So it's just this weird combination of kind of Defenders, kind of Avengers, but not really. Um, <laughs> but just because it bombs so badly, maybe it's because I have a soft spot for them. But, I mean, it's a really weird collection of characters. And to stick them in some kind of story together, my secondary pick for a movie, I think would be hysterically funny, maybe more interesting. I, I don't know, but it's just... It's a weird combo, and I'd love to see them all together. Well, it's hilarious because, you know, like you said, like Avengers are always like varsity, right? Like that's the big team. And then down below them was the Defenders, right? Which were also kind of a joke, you know, like they lasted a lot longer, but it was always like, ah, oh, Defenders. And then the Champions, you're like, oh, no. So <laughs> that's, that's pretty great. Yeah, I love that. But that's there's, a good like the, the one book, because there's some books that I distinctly remember from being a little kid by reading. And one of them was Champions 13, because that's when they introduced Swarm. That was just like, oh, my God, this guy's name out of bees. That's totally cool, <laughs> you know, as a, as a kid. But I could see, you know, them fighting Swarm or if they bring Swarm in to fight Spider-Man at, at some point in time. I mean, it's an interesting villain, but, you know, it's crazy and nuts. I think the Eternals would probably go over a lot better than the champion, but uh, I think it's funny. Well, I think uh -huh. it'd be in the same vein as Guardians of the Galaxy, essentially. If you gathered all the failed franchises, like Ghost Rider, failed. You get X-Men, <laughs> they're not using Iceman anymore. You get all the failed properties and put them in a movie together. That'd be a great idea. Well, like Hercules, <laughs> the the Marvel version of Hercules is a big, stupid, funny lout. You know, he's he's comic relief in a sense. And I, he's one of my favorite Marvel characters because he's such a goon. But he's a gigantic goon that whenever him and Thor tussle, it's funny. There was a comic book, oh, within the past five or six years, I think it was, where they switched costumes and they were pretending to be the other one. Oh, my God. <laughs> if you guys haven't seen that, it is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> and totally tongue-in-cheek, totally funny. But, you know, Hercules would be, I would love to see him in a Thor movie just because he's funny. But, you know, once again, I love Greek mythology, so it brings in that other group of mythological creatures into the MCU. Yeah, no, I love it. I love it. Now, Jeremy, your second pick, can it compete with the champions? <laughs> oh, uh, yes. Uh, this is this is less one movie and more of an entire phase. Wow. Um, it would kind of be sprinkled out throughout the whole next phase, and it would be Secret Invasion. Oh, yeah. Oh. With the scrolls. With the scrolls. So just to clear things up, it's a little fuzzy on the rights, but apparently the scrolls as a species... Marvel Disney has the rights to them. They just can't use any of the main named scrolls or super scrolls because they are too tightly tied to the Fantastic Four. Well, at the very least, if you just do a shape-changing alien race, exactly. even if you had to change the name, like the Chitari, right? Right. You could still work that in. And what way even to send out some of the, the characters that do continue after the Infinity War films to just have, like, you know, it, say Chris Hemsworth decides to stay on as Thor, and then he turns out to be a scroll. You'd be like, what? Like, how long is he been a scroll? Like, those reveals, I remember when that storyline came out, and you're just like, no way, you know? Like, right. So... For clarification, for those fans who are listening who aren't so in-depth into the scrolls, they were 
a race of aliens that can shapeshift. Their shapeshifting ability is pretty much immune to just about everyone's abilities like Wolverine can't smell them, can't sense them. Doctor Strange's magic wasn't able to figure it out. Spider-Man's spider sense wasn't even able to figure it out. Professor X and his telepathy, Iron Man's technology. It took Mr. Fantastic to develop some sort of goggles in order to figure it out, but it took quite a while for that to begin working. And by then, the Illuminati had gone off and had imposed their will pretty much and said, hey, don't come at us. And then they were captured, they were tested on, and Black Bolt was replaced when they were released. And so they just began replacing major heroes in all the various groups and subsections, the Inhumans. They were really worried about the mutants uprising against them. But in the MCU, we don't have mutants, so we don't need the House of M to happen. So there's a lot of stuff that can happen and just replacing them throughout a phase or two beyond Infinity War would really just kind of not drag it out, but seed enough of it to make the big reveal at the end for our heroes to be a big Avengers movie. Like we end up finding out that Tony's talking to not Captain America, but a scroll Captain America at this point. And all all sorts of fun stuff can happen with that. And the one thing I want to add to that is they could bring back those Marvel mini movies and do a scroll kill crew short film. I don't know if you guys know about scroll kill (laughs) crew, but but (laughs) the bottom line is when the scrolls first appeared in Fantastic Four back in the 60s, the way they defeated them essentially was they said, look, we beat you and we want you to turn yourselves into cows, cows and never yeah, shift, yeah. shift back. <laughs> and so the scroll kill crew was this thing in the 90s that the, the scroll cows got turned into hamburgers. And so people were getting infected by scroll hamburgers. And then these people were going out and like knocking off, you know, the scrolls and all, all this stuff. Anyway, so it was like this gang of guys that were the, the scroll kill crew. Oh, wow. So anyway, I just think if you could use that, like that would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but Jeff, now we got shape changing, you know, scrolls. Yeah. So mine's in a different direction because one comic that I didn't ever read consistently, but it was one of those whenever I would be in the comic book shop, it would always catch my eye. Is there for a while, and apparently they went through three different phases, and it was the comic book series What If. And what they would oh, do yeah. is they would take these comics and they would take a famous Marvel storyline and they would give an alternate reality. Like, what if something else had happened? And the cool thing was, sometimes it got really weird. Like, it was one of them I always remember that I always it would always catch my eye, and I'm like, that looks like the dumbest thing ever, was what <laughs> if Wolverine was Lord of the Vampires? So like, what? <laughs> Who cares? Yes. But some of them, like my favorite one, and I've kept this one, because so often they had a way of like Twilight Zone style kind of getting under my skin. And like one of them was, what if the Fantastic Four's child was evil? Oh, that one just haunted my dreams. But there was one that was, back in the 80s, they did a horrible crossover called Atlantis Attacks, where they had this whole... (laughs) ridiculous scheme about raising the god set to destroy the world or whatever and it was just a lame crossover that took place in their summer annuals back when they used to do them and oh i hated it but they did a what if and it was what if marvel had lost atlantis attacks and basically it was 
every single superhero either got their mind washed, got turned into a serpent slave, or was killed. And it was just like it was the apocalypse of the Marvel universe. And it was fascinating to me to see all of these heroes. Like still my favorite moment was like one of the last heroes standing is Thor because Thor is almost invulnerable. And he stands there and he throws his hammer at the, the head of Set and it swallows Jolner. And he's like, what? And so he calls Jolner back. And, you know, so strong is the pull of Jolner that it bursts through the head and explodes one of the heads of Set. And awesome moment. Anyway, to do this, though, because every single issue would is independent and every single issue, you know, is a different storyline. And they use, you know, all these different Marvel characters. So in my eyes, the only way this could work would be either one, a YouTube series or a YouTube channel or something like that, that some, you know, independent home movies or something like that, they do it just for fun or whatever. And it could be pretty awesome. You just, you're not going to get Chris Helmsworth to be in every single one of these or to do it as a cartoon show. And then you could do it as a cartoon show. You can put Thor in there and you don't have to go and, you know, pay millions of dollars to get Helmsworth or Robert Downey Jr. or something like that. And I think it'd be really cool. And not only that, because I'm always worried that the Marvel Cinematic Universe is in danger of getting stale, that people are going to be like, well, we've kind of gotten the formula down already. And for me, I feel like let's see Captain America die maybe one time and actually stay dead. What would that look like? And they could actually tell those stories through a medium like that. Oh, Jeff, you get my vote, man. I have stacks and stacks of what if comics from the 70s to the 80s to the 90s. And I will mention one of my favorite what ifs is just because black costume Spider-Man is my favorite version. But they had one that was what if Venom had possessed the Punisher? So you had Venom Punisher? Wow. Like, that, that was intense. I mean, that was pretty amazing. But the coolest part about it is at the end, the Punisher was so strong-willed, he could control the symbiote. He was in full control of it and its powers. You know, it wasn't able to take him over. So anyway, it was just like, it's just amazing now, what they come up with. Another one, which is not the same as What If, it was like a sister comic book, was What The... <laughs> which was a spoof. Did you ever see yeah. that one? Oh, I have it'd those be, too. Yeah. It's like it'd Mad Magazine. Exactly. It'd be interesting to do like an episode or two that was what the, all the what those were so weird. That actually is a great idea to just do an animated series that's what if. Well, and the cool thing that I liked about it is it was always introduced by Watu, the Watcher because he was like, I watched it and I saw what actually happened, but I also know what could have happened. And that way, the people, the fans that aren't familiar with these classic comic book stories, first they learn the real version in like a brief synopsis and then they learn the alternate one. So it's kind of like a whole generation that didn't grow up reading these comics from the 80s and 70s and 60s could be exposed to it that way too. All right, well, my last pick here, we've done a lot of Marvel. We've been talking Marvel, Marvel. Mine is actually a DC property, but it's kind of little known. However, the creators have contributed quite a bit to superhero movies' success lately, which is, it's a book by two British guys named Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning. Now, they're the ones who reinvented the Guardians of the Galaxy to what the movies are based on. That version is their 
vision of what the Guardians of the Galaxy could be because they had a lot of other iterations prior to that that didn't quite hit. But they worked for DC in the mid-90s, and they came up with a character series called Resurrection Man. Now, this was one of those things that just captured my imagination. When I first got a guitar, the first song I wrote was about Resurrection Man. <laughs> like, all this stuff. Like, I just, I was so obsessed with it. But the basic premise is this homeless man finds out he has superpowers, but total amnesia, no recollection of where they came from or even who he is. So, as it also turns out, every time he dies, he comes back and he returns with a different paranormal ability. Now, most of the deaths are occurring when he's, you know, stepping in heroically to save somebody. You know, so he's just kind of not sure what he's doing, but he's like, well, I can help these people, so let me help them. But in the meantime, he's being hunted by a pair of sexy bounty hunters called the Body Doubles and a feisty government agent named Kim Rebecca and then this other immortal homeless psycho named Hooker who wants to eat his heart and is like murdering all these people along the way and eating their heart while he's trying to find this guy who doesn't know who he is but eventually ends up in his hometown, puts some clues together finds out he was a lawyer named Mitch Shelley who represented criminals, the mob, all these people. He was a bad lawyer. And he was murdered in a plot that was actually concocted by his wife and his best friend, Richard, who were having an affair, and they murdered him. So all the memories come flooding back. He decides after he gets that all squared away with them that he is going to basically kind of atone for his criminal past and continue just to wander the earth helping people. But as the series went on, like he learns, my corpse was stolen by a research facility and they injected me with nanotechnology, these things called tectites that are in my blood. So that's why every time he dies, the tectites are rebuilding him and doing it based on how he died to allow him to be prepared. And then he finds out, you know, that the other crazy immortal who doesn't come back with paranormal abilities he just can't die so it's like if his neck gets broken his neck is just broken you know like hanging there type of thing but he's just not dead that was the guy who actually created the tectites and drove him insane when he, he tried to eject himself and so there's just all these levels to it and so many mysteries so to me it's too much for one film so I really feel like it would work best as like a Netflix original series with maybe like three seasons because the first could, you know, just do the mystery of uncovering his actual identity and getting his memory back. And then the second season could be kind of understanding the nature of his immortality. OK, where did it come from? And then the third season could be really like, OK, here's the source here. I go to this facility and now he has this showdown with Hooker and all this stuff. And if they wanted to tie it into an existing property in the comics, he does have a run in with another immortal character, Vandal Savage, who Jeremy, big fan of Legends of Tomorrow, was a big you know player of the first season. So they could maybe tie Vandal Savage into that or at least have a cameo. So if I were to get into my casting, when I think of the Mitch Shelley character, I think of Mark Harmon from NCIS because <laughs> he's been doing that forever and he's such like the good guy but he's like the tortured good guy you know he's always kind of got that dark edge to him you're not quite sure what he's thinking half the time so I felt like he would be a good protagonist then I love Marlon Wayans 
we remember him as being the goofy brother of, you know, the guy from In Living Color, but he was good in G.I. Joe, you know, and he's good at playing wacky characters. So I would see him as the hooker character who's stalking him. And then I, w- I would like to get Simone Missick, who was playing Misty Knight in Luke Cage, to be Kim Rebecca, again, this agent who's kind of on his trail and eventually teams up with him and they have a romance. And then for the body doubles, like I was saying, the, the hot bounty hunters, I was thinking Margot Robbie and Megan Fox. Because they would just have that crazy (laughs) dynamic, you know, crazy girls just going after it. And then Richard is the name of his best friend who orchestrated his murder. And I just want to put Paul Giamatti in there because I love Paul Giamatti. So let him be the evil best friend. Perfect. Make him the bad guy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, but uh, he'd be great. So, (laughs) but have you guys ever heard of Resurrection Man? That was a new 52 book, wasn't it? Yeah, they relaunched it. It it sounds very familiar. I thought it was cool. That's got to be where I read it from as a DC thing yeah the only thing i didn't like about the reboot is they tied it in more to like the war between heaven and hell kind of like a spawn thing where he's like oh you know the angels and god wants your soul and all this stuff and i was kind of like i liked it better when it was they, more they tied it into uh, they tied it into phantom stranger and that whole group yeah. of mystical that's where that's where i know that from but it's a fun book yeah find the original 90s run it's got some some great stuff in it so i also had a third pick here because i wasn't sure if anybody else was going to pick it but it was dc and it was tower of babel tell me about it i don't even know that you don't it was an iteration that they have adapted in the animated version called Justice League Doom, but it's essentially Ra's al Ghul gets a hold of Batman's files on all the members of the Justice League, and then Ra's and his cronies takes out all of the Justice League, leaving Batman alone, and it's an attempt to take over the world by incapacitating all of the Justice League. Well, Batman figures it out and ends up being able to reverse some of the effects and it ends up at the end where Batman is expelled from the Justice League. Wow, that could actually be a really cool place for them to take it, right? And it would be awesome if you're going to have you know, Ra's al Ghul in there. Let's tie it a little bit to the Nolan verse, you know? Right. Just... I mean, you don't have to go Ra's al Ghul. I'm sure you can adapt it by choosing another villain who has gotten in there and who just hooks up with some other villains and they become like a supervillain team that takes out the Justice Justice League and Batman has to overcome the odds and take out each one in order to reverse some of the effects, get the Justice League back on his side, stop the major plan. And then in the end, it comes down to a vote on the Justice League board as to whether or not he's going to stay part of the Justice League or not, because they find that wait, you have all of these contingency plans on all of us, but we don't have any on you, so it, it'd be interesting. It is. That's a pretty epic storyline. Kind of reminds me of Wanted, you know, with Angelina Jolie and James McAvoy. That was based That's on right. a book by Mark Millar, Mark Miller, however you pronounce it. But they took out the entire premise of that book was that all the super villains banded together and killed every superhero and then warped reality to where nobody remembered that superheroes ever existed. 
And then it turns out that the kid who's like the main protagonist was the son of a supervillain. And then he learns about the secret underground world where the supervillains control the world, but nobody knows they even exist. It was such a great idea. Everybody comes together, gets the information, then takes out the superheroes one by one. And they totally threw it all away for the movie. And I was disappointed. So to get wow. an Injustice yeah. League movie, do it. I got to say, I'm kind of surprised because the two names that always come up on all the boards that I read from Marvel fans, the ones they want to see i always hear namor for some reason everyone wants to see the submariner and the silver surfer neither one i have <laughs> any interest in but everybody always talks about <laughs> wanting to see those two i can see namor i mean he's kind of a douchebag character <laughs> <laughs> he's a poor man's aquaman without a beard agreed <laughs> and he aligns with the heroes when it benefits Atlantis, but when it doesn't, he can be a menacing kind of superhuman type villain, and it would expand the MCU to include the water universe, of course, but... Yeah, yeah. Namor is always best as an antagonist. John Byrne did a great run of Namor in the 90s. Like, he had to make him, oh, he could be on land now all the time, and he runs a corporation, and all this stuff, and it was just like, there's not a lot of ways to go, but when you deal with, okay, the mentally unstable king of Atlantis is yeah. now coming for revenge on humans, that's cool. He always works better when he's sort of an ally. Oh, no, you crossed him the wrong way, you know? Now he's going to kill everybody. You know, like he's just unpredictable. Like that's what makes it. He, I don't think he should ever headline a film. It just, it would not be fun. And like I said, we're getting Aquaman anyway. So what would be the point, you know, right. now? Right. Well, and it's funny because, you know, in the original Infinity battle, that was hit the first line is that they sent him and She-Hulk to go punch Thanos. That was a great idea. <laughs> and both of them died instantly. Like, they were the first casualties in that whole battle. And then the same thing is the, the finishing blow was supposed to be Silver Surfer. So if we've knocked both of them out, well... So, Jeremy, Jeff's talking about things that people are dreaming of that still haven't happened like we've been talking about, but can you maybe give us the top in-development films? Because I know you got your finger on the pulse there. Yeah, I, I'm looking at the list now, and it's overwhelming almost. There's currently 74 movies wow. or things that are in production. That includes Kingsman, The Golden Circle coming out soon. Yay. <laughs> right? We've got Batman and Harley Quinn, the animated Warner Brothers movie coming out. Gotham Girls, Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy, right? Yeah, like that, one's, live action. that one's not been named yet. Oh, really? Uh -huh. Obviously, Thor Ragnarok and Justice League later this year. Black Panther coming out next February, Infinity War, New Mutants, Deadpool 2, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Venom, as we discussed last week, Dark Phoenix, Aquaman, the animated Spider-Man feature starring Miles Morales by Sony, also Captain Marvel a year and a half from now. Shazam is still somewhat on a calendar. If The Rock would stop making movies, that guy is oh. just a machine. Hey, we got, you know, we got <laughs> Jumanji 2 coming out. We, you know, he's got his Rampage movie, he just had all the Fast and the Furious stuff. I'm just like, the guy doesn't stop. He's no, intense. no, he doesn't. Now, Captain Marvel to me is the real wild card. Like, that's the one where they threw that up. 
and then you're like starring an Oscar winning actress in the lead role. You're just like, what are they doing with this movie? Like, I have no idea where they're going to go with that. It's just like, what, although, what is this character? Although I should point out that they did release a Catwoman with an Oscar award winning actress. <laughs> <laughs> oh, touche, touche. Yeah, but that was not made by Disney Marvel. So we're at a different time. So, all right. Well, Kurt, thank you so much for being here with us. It was really, yeah. really a pleasure to sure. connect with you again and, and hear your experiences in the world of comics and portraying comic book characters. That's so cool. Maybe we'll we'll have you back again sometime on a regular episode. If there's a film franchise that you felt needs to come back, needs a sequel, let us know. We'd love to have you. Awesome. Cool. I love it. All right. That's the show. Thanks for joining us. If you're at Comic-Con right now, in line, at the Hasbro booth, like we asked you before, can you just <laughs> wave Kurt in? Kurt's ready to get his figures, okay? He's not going to take up too much of your time. One person in front of you is not going to make all the difference. And uh, please, you know, be kind, be courteous to all your fellow geeks. We want awesome reports from Comic-Con. This is the golden age, folks. So until next time. Up, up, and away! I don't know why I chose that catchphrase. (laughs) We thank you for listening to this episode of Sequel Quest and invite you to continue the fake movie fun on social media. Submit your ideas for future episodes to sequelquestpod at gmail.com or sqpod on Twitter. The films and characters discussed on Sequel Quest are the property of their respective studios and license holders. No copyright infringement is intended. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.